0: Not everyone has to be an entrepreneur, but if you know that it's for you and you have an idea, then it's for a reason. And if not you, then who? Exactly. And it's never too late. Never too late.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Official Laughs Podcast. My name is Samantha Towns, and along with Estefania Lacayo, we founded the Latin American Fashion Summit, a global platform for Latin American fashion and design. Our podcast sessions aim to enrich the industry. We sit down with designers, entrepreneurs, leaders, and newcomers, and share their powerful stories with you. Thank you for being here, and we hope you enjoy the following conversation. Hi, welcome to the last podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce a Latina entrepreneur who I genuinely admire. Sandra Velasquez. She is the founder of the clean and revolutionary bath and body care brand, Nopalera. This beautiful company was founded to make Latina aspirational in the beauty sector. Its products are inspired by the nopal cactus, an ancient symbol of Mexican culture. The story of Sandra is one of the most inspiring in the cosmetic industry that I've ever heard. So I immediately texted her, In, on Instagram. And I was so happy that she replied. She radically changed her career path at 44 with a kid. And in just three years, she closed an oversubscribed seat round of $2.7 million. So welcome, Sandra. It is an, an honor to have you here with me at the last podcast.
0: Thank you for that beautiful intro.
1: Yeah, well, I have to say again, I have been following you and Nopalera since a long time ago, and I was scrolling on your Instagram. I was actually looking at the sizzle reel that you posted of Shark Tank, and I was like, I have to talk to her. And there are several reasons why. First of all, I empathize with you being an entrepreneur, being a mom, and obviously, I have a lot of questions about raising capital because we're in the midst of doing that ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I really, really, really need to talk to Sandra. So again, thank you so much for accepting and replying to my text, my DM, the yeah, yes. Instagram. <laughs> So Sandra, Nopalera is a bath and body care brand that is inspired by the beauty and richness of Mexico. I don't know if you know, I'm Mexican myself and I live in Yucatan, Um, but it's specifically made of nopal cactus. Can you share with us the story behind creating such a unique brand?
0: Yeah. So the Nopal, you know, I was born and raised in San Diego, California, which is about 10 minutes from the US Mexico border. My parents are Mexican. So I grew up in a very you know, proud Mexican family, and nopales are really abundant, and so much so that I honestly think we have just overlooked them and taken them for granted, which to me was also a metaphor for us as as a people here in this country. Um, and so, I was actually unemployed in the summer of 2019 for the first time in my adult life, which was very scary because I had no savings, I had nothing to fall back on. I didn't own a house, no, I don't own a car. Um, I and so there I was with my daughter, who was 13 at the time and just realized wow like i'm in this moment of life where i need to do something different i need to make a change otherwise nothing is going to change in my in my life financially and so that was a moment that i decided i was going to build something and become an entrepreneur and i knew that beauty was a high margin category. It's, I like personal care because it's a consumer product that is a necessity. You know, we all take showers. And um, and the idea for the nopal is just, I was standing here in front of, I'm actually in San Diego right now. I was standing in my parents' front yard and they have a nopalera, just like many people in Southern California do. And it just, it was like a lightning bolt idea. Like, you know what? I'm going to build a brand around this plant that all of us recognize. It's the most Mexican plant ever. It's extremely resilient. It is not only good for your health to eat, but also has all these amazing properties for your skin and hair. And so I just knew that I was going to create a brand in Spanish that I was going to call Nopalera. Um, and then I had to figure out what what are the products and how to make them. So that's why I ended up making the products myself for the first year, because I literally had no idea how to find manufacturing partners.
1: So you had to like literally come up with all the ingredients and, and study... Um, did you enroll in a course or, or how did you end up creating all these formulas?
0: Yes, I enrolled in Formula Botanica, which is a online organic skincare formulation school based in the UK. And they're fantastic. I always refer people who are interested in formulating over to Formula Botanica. And they it's a very robust program. It's It was about a year long. I think I did it in nine months. And really, just understanding what ingredients did, what they were, you know, um, and studying the clean beauty space specifically because that's where I knew I wanted to participate. Um, in this country, in the United States, it's it's kind of like the wild west, which is a little scary because people can pretty much make anything and sell it, and it's not regulated. Whereas in Europe, the, the standards for ingredients are much stricter, and um, so I knew that I wanted to build a high-end clean beauty brand. And that I wanted to get into Credo Beauty, which has the highest ingredient standards in the United States. It's the closest to Europe that we will get here. It's cleaner than Sephora, it's cleaner than Ulta, or you know, definitely than Target. And so I studied there. I had to study those ingredient lists of things I could not use, and then formu- learn how to formulate around them. And that's why I really wanted to understand, you know, formulation. And so I, I studied formulation for you know a year while also working on the brand. So like the branding you know, the mission, the core values, the foundation of the brand, essentially. So that was all like a year.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask also about the brand. Did you always envision to make this brand very, you know, cater to the Latina community? Um, obviously it's, it's, you know, um, a goal and it's a very, it's part of the DNA of the brand. Like you immediately recognize that this is, you know, a brand that caters to the Latina consumer.
0: So it was always my intention to create an overtly Latina brand, but to make it so beautiful and aspirational that people that were not Latina and people that did not know what a nopal was, or let alone a nopalera was, would also want it. And that's that's what's happened ultimately. And so it is, it was very intentional. We're not making a brand just to sell to Latinas. I mean, how would we even control that? Right. <laughs> but I yeah. knew that I knew that Latinas would be our first consumer, right? Because they would immediately get it, you know, anyone that is Mexican knows, they grew up eating it and, and the, you know, the Mexican community is the largest within the Latino community here in the United States. So I knew that I was talking to the broadest Latino audience, you know, or the biggest here and that everyone else would just be interested, you know, and they would pique their interest.
1: And how, and then right now, like, what would you say of the split in your demographics This is still mainly Latino?
0: No, it's it's gone. We I mean we can search by hashtag and we can see that it's reached, you know, um all sorts of you know different, you know, cultural backgrounds. People are attracted to it for its boldness, even if they don't, they're not Latina, they're just attracted to the brand for what it stands for. And and you know, even men, you know, appreciate no palera. So it's it's not just Latinas, and nor were we ever trying to only sell to Latinas.
1: Amazing. Amazing. I mean, the col- the colors are so bold, the branding is impeccable. Um, what? How did you detect uh, in the in the market? Like you would say that it was such a, you know, um, an opportunity for you to and, and encouraged you to launch No What did you detect in the market that was missing?
0: Well, what was missing was us because I was working in sales for other brands, so I was you know in stores and just noticing on the shelves there was a lot of not a lot, but there was a significant amount of, you know, African-inspired brands, you know, celebrating their heritage, like Alafia, Shea Moisture, Nubian Heritage. And they were celebrating their culture on their packaging. And it just kind of dawned on me, like, why are there not Latino brands that are doing this when we are actually, we are actually the largest minority in this country. And so it, to me, it was like, I had to do this. Once I had the idea, it really felt like a calling. Like I had no choice but to move forward and make it happen and make it the best possible because, you know, I can't be the, I can't be the last, <laughs> you know, really like why are there not more brands like Nopalera everywhere in this country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So at 44, you decided to reinvent your life from scratch and became the CEO of this Latinx legacy brand. I find it truly inspiring. Um, And it's just like your second life, right? You were saying that you had a, a job prior to this, what were you doing before launching No Palera?
0: Mm-hmm. I was working in the CPG space, but in like food and beverage. And so the last quote unquote day job I had was for Van Lewen and ice cream. I was a Northeast Territory sales manager. So managing merchandisers and you know going into stores and selling the product into stores um, in the Northeast Territory. So that was, you know, I, I gained a lot of great experience working for other CPG brands. Um, And, but at the same time, I was, I had actually always been a professional musician because I live in New York. You have to have like five jobs to even like survive and pay the rent. So I was, you know, every day job I've ever had has always been like a day job. But I thought, you know, my passion was always music. And, you know, I was the leader of the band Pistolera, which was a Latin alternative band. I also sang in Spanish. So this whole idea of cultural celebration is is not a new concept that I came up with with Palera. It's something I have been doing for like 20 years, Um, but I had been doing it in music. You know, I have been using music as my cultural storytelling platform and now I just moved it over to a product. That's
1: amazing. So when you first launched the company, um, you didn't have any network or connections in the beauty industry, you enroll yourself into these courses and you're developing your brand, but where do you start? Like as an entrepreneur trying to tap into the beauty industry, how and where do you start?
0: Yeah, um I was an outsider so I had no connections, no network and and also important to note like no money. You know, like how was I going to start a brand and launch a company with no money? And I did it. you know, remember, I'm unemployed this time. I have no savings. I have no, you know, significant partner with um, you know, a corporate, you know, job that's going to fund me and and my new idea. So I was literally just on my own with, you know, $86,000 of student loan debt, $30,000 of personal debt and so here I am. With all of that, I'm still going to start this company. And I did it with my American Express card. And the most important thing, which I learned from just working for other companies and what I just saw, and I knew this just from being a musician and being a performer, is that the brand is the most important thing because the reality is that most products out there are mostly the same. You know, like take any category, cereal, right? Like they're mostly the same. What's, What's attracting you to one or the other is the brand and what it stands for and what it means to you. And the same goes for beauty, right? And, and I'm saying this as a formulator. The majority of beauty products out there are the same. And what's why you choose one or the other is how it's presented to you, how it's branded, what the specific call outs are, et cetera, how it makes you feel, you know, depending on what kind of shopper you are. And so building the brand was the most important thing. And it's still the most important thing to this day. You know, obviously our products have to be good, you know, they have to work, they have to be, you know, efficacious. But ultimately, what pulls people in first is. You know, and I mean, you tell me right when you saw the brand, are you intrigued about the ingredients or are you intrigued by the brand? I was
1: honestly intrigued by the brand. And <laughs> yeah. the way I discovered you is because we were doing a beauty market research for a client and they came over and they said, I need to know um, about, you know, Latin or, um, you know, it, Hispanic or Latin brands, what are they doing in different spaces in skincare, haircare, fragrances, and all that. And mm-hmm. I was in like, in, I instantly became like so intrigued about your brand because I was reading all these amazing articles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, I was like, the the way I found out about Nalpoalera was about your success story first and foremost. And mm-hmm. then I started following the brand. Mm-hmm. And But I already knew about kind of like, your story and how you raised money and all your achievements. So that was great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think, you know, back to your question of like, how do you start? To me, it all started with building the foundation. Obviously, I was also having to figure out how to make products at the same time. So I was doing that concurrently, but really, really narrowing in on like what, why is this brand going to stand out? What do I need to do to make it stand out? How, you know, how bold do we need to be? And just really focusing on the brand, which I think a lot of people, especially formulators, they tend to focus on the ingredients first and foremost. But the, re- the reality is that customers don't know what ingredients are, what they mean, what they do. They they hear trends, you know, like now all of a sudden everyone hears like, you know, parabens are bad, but no one really knows what that means, right? They just hear about it. <laughs> so yeah. Um and so um, that was, you know, I spent a lot of time, a lot of intention behind building the brand and what the North Star was and being very, very clear about that. And I think that that's why ultimately the brand has been successful. Like there were, there were no accidents here, you know, us getting to Credo, us getting to Nordstrom, us, you know, doing everything we've done has been because I spent that year really f- taking the time and the intention to build the foundation of a strong brand that's going to last.
1: Yeah, I agree. So... When you launched the brand, did you launch a hero product? It was just one product. How many products did you decide that you were going to have when launching the brand?
0: I knew that at some point I decided I was going to go into Bath & Body and not do skincare. So skincare is really like the face, you know, and skincare is very saturated. It's very competitive. It's very clinical. And I just didn't have a passion, to be honest with you, for fixing people's you know, face lines or wrinkles or, you know, diminishing blemishes. Like that's not, other people are doing that really well. And that's just not what I want my impact to be. So for me, going the bath and body route uh, was I could get behind that more because it's more about the ritual, it's more self care, which I'm all about that. And so uh, I knew I had, they had to be products that I could make. You know, I didn't have really technical equipment. I made everything by hand, you know, so I was learning how to make the soaps. I had custom molds made. And so I knew I was going to make a soap that I wanted to make, you know, a body scrub. And then I wanted to make some kind of lotion, but I didn't want to get into plastic bottles. So that's why I came up with the the solid, you know, lotion botanical bar. and um, And really wanted to just make a statement like, this is also a brand that cares about sustainability. Um and so I wanted to make products that went together, you know. So the first products were, you know, the soap, the scrub and the lotion bar. And we just have different variations of those and that's still our product lo- you know collection today. We're working on new products, but it's you know we've gotten pretty far with just those. So you got these products and then what do you do? Did you start knocking on, you know,
1: retailer stores um or 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 how did you go about the process of now putting your brand into stores and shelves and... Or even your e-commerce direct consumer?
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that I did right from the very beginning is that I worked on building an email list before I launched. So that when I launched, I had someone to launch to. And I started running targeted Facebook ads probably four months before launch. And all I had was a logo, what we call the Cactus Goddess. Um, All I had was her uh, because the products weren't done yet. The packaging wasn't done yet. I didn't have official photographs yet of the products. So I just had her and I just you know put simply like Mexican Botanicals for Bath & Body because I wanted to be very, very clear and overt. Like this is Mexican, you know, it's for Bath & Body. And, um, you know, I think I said like... um, you know, sign up, you know, to be notified when we launch. And people again, like this is the power of branding is that people were so attracted to that image, you know, of our cactus goddess that they get, they signed up for an email list before even knowing what the product was going to be. And so I had about 800 people, I would say on the email list uh, and... Then, you know, I just had a landing page at that point. And then once, so when I launched every, they got notified, you know, and I started to also post on socials, you know, I just, again, had renders of the products. I didn't have professional photographs yet, but my designer provided renders. And you can go back to the very first, you know, by Instagram post, and you'll see those, you know, renders before <laughs> we had real pictures and just started to, you know, tell people. And so that, that snowballed. And that was also kind of the... The golden era of Facebook ads, because now everything has changed in the digital marketing space. You can no longer do targeted ads. You know, back then, and this was only like two years ago, right? Um, I could send, I could send an ad, create an ad, and say, show this to women between the ages of 27 and 45 that live in, you know, Houston, Dallas, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, who like, you know, tequila, salsa, Sephora, you know, human rights. <laughs> You know, it was yeah. very targeted. It was great. And so I v- am very fortunate that I was able to kind of build my snowball, you know, in the paid ads world then, because now our audiences are more dialed in um, instead of starting now. And, and then in terms of you know your question, like how did I get into stores? That was actually a bit of surprise to me because coming from sales, I was prepared to go and knock on doors and do exactly what you just said because that's what I had been doing for other brands. And I didn't have to because they found us and they found us through social media because I... Of course, I, again, the beauty was... and
1: the power of social media.
0: Yes. And so that was a surprise to me because those ads that I was that I was running to our D2C customers were also being seen by boutiques. And so they started to reach out. Do you wholesale? Do you wholesale? And it became so much so that I had to create like a, an application form so that I wasn't my inbox wasn't getting, you know, bombarded or my DMs. And so then um people now we have a whole system where you know stock is apply, And we've had to say no to um to like hundreds because we have We're almost like oversaturated in certain cities with the boutiques, you know, because they don't like one to be across the street from the other, you know, it's not, it's not like when you sell a protein bar where you want it to be everywhere. So, um, we have, you know, over 400 boutiques across the country.
1: So at this point you are making your own product and now you're talking that you had an amazing database of direct consumer, a lot of stores were reaching out. You haven't we're not yet in the point where you started to raise capital. Mm-mm. How did you scale that production from making it from, you know, from scratch yourself into, you know, supplying that demand?
0: It was really stressful. Because I could not keep up with the demand. I had to, I grew out of my apartment. Obviously, I had to rent a, a studio space. Then I had to hire two assistants to help me pour soap because we're making it by hand. So it's extremely laborious. It's like no different than making cupcakes. You know, we're literally pouring every bar of soap into a mold and then having to unmold it then having to let it you know put it on the shelf let it cure because real soap needs to cure you know for weeks and then boxing it up it, it's so laborious and manual that people they just take soap for granted everyone thinks like soap is like this cheap commodity but true soap like when it's cold process soap it's it's very laborious it's a chemical process it's it's not easy um and and it was stressful to try to keep up with demand because i just um you know making things by hand is just you can't scale that you know so it took me the entire first year to find manufacturing partners that would make my my formulas and that was a huge relief so i closed out 2021 you know my first full year of business with being able to you know hand my formulas over to a manufacturing partner you know outside of new york city who would make my formulas exactly like me and that was a big moment
1: so then did you, um, I mean, we were reading an article in Beauty Independent um, that your involvement in an accelerator program and pitch competitions was crucial um, for you and to to scale your business. Is this the point where you started to say, I mean, this is huge. I really need to, you know, start, um, you know, raising capital or or how did you go about it that next step?
0: Yeah, it was, um, I was in... I think I've been in like five accelerators. I applied for everything because again, I had no network. I didn't know anyone. So, I knew that that was the only way that I could put myself into new rooms and meet people that could that could help me. And um and the Credo Beauty, the cohort the Credo cohort for change, I think it was what it's called, was the first one that I got into. And that one culminated into a pitch day. To VCs, and so that was my first time ever meeting like a VC in in real life because I literally had no idea how to find like how do I find the people with the money? I don't know any people with money. My family doesn't know any people with money. Like I, I don't know anyone in that world. And so what I have learned right through this fundraising process and just what I learned over the last year is that once you meet one VC or one height now with individual, you meet three because they all know each other. They hang out with each other. Just like those of us that don't have money hang out with each other. The people that have money, they know each other. And so you just need to you need to put yourself in new rooms to meet those people, even if it's just one person, because that is going to be the doorway. And so that was my first time meeting VCs and having the opportunity to pitch to them. And at that time, I laugh at this now because um, I've, you know, so much has happened. But at that time, I was asking for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and the VC, one of the VCs, asked me. I think it was Andrea from Next World Green. She said, "Why are you? Why are you asking for so little?" <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, "I was like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to take more than I need." And that was really so telling of my mentality then, um, which is that so many of us are in survival mode and we don't want to, we're scared of debt. We're scared of borrowing. We're scared of loans. And we don't, we're so used to only like making enough money to survive. And that was Mm -hmm. so indicative of my mindset at the time. Now I've transcended that. I'm in a different place now, but it's so interesting to look back and think that I thought that that was a lot of money. Back then.
1: Of course. I mean, you started with your Amex, yes, probably Yeah. probably all the operations yeah. um, were, you know, I mean, you had a healthy business where all the money from your sales went into production and you were like, that's all I need, right?
0: Yeah. I was like, yeah, I just need enough money for this next batch of inventory, right? Like we're just thinking like just a, a little bit into the future, right? Like we're not allowing ourselves to really dream... Bigger, right? Even though I had a big vision, a big dream, I, I, I was still didn't know how to like go and ask for like a million dollars, you know, and so um, that was the beginning. And then those investors that I met introduced me to other investors, right? And that's kind of how it snowballed, right? It all started from that Credo for Change pitch day. And some of the people that I met in that those investors are still like my mentors and friends to this day, and they're still very, very helpful, which I'm so grateful for. Um, And then then it was just like asking, then you have to be bold and start to ask people for introductions, you know? And then I started, you know, I joined Twitter just to follow VCs because so many of the VCs are on Twitter and just to see like what they're talking about and what their concerns are and what are their anxieties and, you know, what are the topics? And and um, and um, that's kind of just how it went. And it wasn't until, you know, last summer. So it was around the time that I filmed Shark Tank that I was officially starting to fundraise. And at that time I had, had built it up to like, I'm going to raise a million dollars. Right. And that took, you know, a lot of mental hurdles to get over, to be able to say, I'm raising a million dollars. And those hurdles were purely in my mind. Right. Um, And so I went out to raise a million. And then one of my mentors who I'm lucky enough to call my mentor, Margarita Ariagada, who was a former chief merchant of Sephora, who I met because I was also in her pitch competition and won her grant Um, she said, you know, we were at a dinner in LA. She said, you really should just raise 2 million because it's the same amount of work as raising 1 million and you're going to need the runway. (laughs) And I was like, you're right. You're right. Thank you for telling me that. So I went home and I changed the deck and I'm like, we're raising 2 million now. And so it's just funny to go back and say like, you know, to remember when I was raising 250,000, then I made it 500,000, then it was a million, then it was 2 million. And then I ended up, you know, closing an oversubscribed seed run of 2.7. And at the end, I was having to turn people down. Which is, again, such a mind That's trip. That's amazing. It's, but it's a mind trip, right? Because you see... Now I can see clearly that the way that money works mm-hmm. is that money is attracted to money. And so if you go in asking for too little, people are not attracted to a small vision. You know? Like how... What does that say about what you're building if you're only looking for like $100,000? You know? Mm-hmm. Um so people are looking for, in the beginning, they're investing in you as a founder, right? So they, they're looking for people with big visions and big ideas. Um, and and that requires capital.
1: <laughs> did you understand anything about raising capital before? How, how did you, you know, um, I mean, how did you end up understanding all the things that go into raising capital from, you know, how much equity are you going to give and stuff like that? Like, how do you prepare yourself for that?
0: I don't think you prepare, I think you learn as you go and then you know it once you do it. And that it's it's literally no different than how I did anything in this brand, right? How do I learn how to make products? Well, you go learn, you know. <laughs> how do I learn how to you know, um like make soap? Well, I learned, right? Like I didn't grow up learning any of this. No one in my family had these skills or had this knowledge. And so you just have to be hungry to learn and you have to be courageous to ask questions. And um one of the accelerators it wasn't really an accelerator it was more like a program that i was in um was the true beauty ventures and beauty independent bridge mentorship cohort and i was in the first i was in the inaugural cohort it was this new partnership between true beauty ventures which is a vc firm that invests solely in beauty and beauty independent and they picked 3 brands and i was one of them and that is where i got to really dig deeper into you know, how does this all work? You know, what do these words mean? What does this mean? And even still to this day, I'm in a Slack channel with Rich and Christina from True Beauty Ventures. And I still ask them a ton of questions, you know, and I still want to bounce ideas off of them, even though they're not even my investors, right? I just use them as mentors, right? They're just so valuable as people that are in this space to really hear their perspective, you know, and, um, and so I knew nothing. I literally had to learn everything from scratch, and I'm still learning. Right? It's still confusing to me. <laughs> yeah, so, of course. So I think that it's important for you know anyone listening who's going to go raise money to to not don't worry about the things you don't know. Just be in, be curious about learning about them. You know, that's the most important thing. You know.
1: Did you ever regret any decision when it came to raising capital? Like oh, I shouldn't have given that much equity, or I shouldn't have done this. I like of course it's a learning curve and, and there's a maturity process have you ever said god i wish i knew this before
0: um well i was no i don't have any regrets about the money that i raised i've only raised once and you know i was fortunate to have a lead investor you know which ended up being latitude ventures which is a latino fund so there was a lot of alignment there and then the other 700,000 was made up of you know six different angel investors that came in and they're mostly you know, women of color too, which is great. And so I don't have any regrets for the equity that I've given up to date because we're really a lean team and we can stretch this money and we're putting it to work in ways that's going to help us scale. And there was really just no other... I wasn't interested in crowdfunding because the thing about raising money that is also important to note is that you're not. it's not just about getting the check from the investor. It's like, what resources are they bringing to the table to help you scale? Smart money. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why when people ask me, like, oh, why don't you do crowdfunding? I'm like, because what skills are those people bringing to me? Or do they have, do they know American Express personally? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because because I want to be in an American Express commercial, you know? And so what, you know, do they know people? Do they, do they know the Sephora and Ulta buyers? Because those are the connections that we need, you know? So that's, that's the reason that I went the VC route.
1: That's amazing. And, I, I really I'm very curious. Um, you said in an interview, um confidence plus clarity equals cash.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can, can you explain that formula?
0: Yeah, it's really that again, when you're pitching to investors, you they're investing in you, in your big bold idea, in the team, in the ability that you have to build the winning team in in the vision, right? and you have to show up with that confidence even if you don't have money you have to sh- you have to be the money and that's really something i learned from you know listening and watching arlen hamilton you know the 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 venture capitalist from backstage capital like when you don't have the money you cannot show up desperate and depressed and slouched over and like desperate for any money that people are going to give you you still you have to become the money because money attracts money and if you don't have it then then it's you right. And that is your confidence. You showing up with the confidence of your vision of your, you know, that you've studied your market, your category, um, and the clarity of that, like clarity is, is, is queen, you know? Um, and that goes for branding for anything, you know, as Mm -hmm. they say, like, if you confuse, you lose, you know? So like being crystal clear, about like, what is this brand? Who is it for? What is a market opportunity? And then the confidence behind that when you say those things and when you're presenting your, your vision and your idea and your in your pitch deck, those two things are what I want people to say yes. You know?
1: Have you seen any um, upside being double minority when raising capital? Because we know that, you know, the opportunities for women and for latina owned businesses on raising capital are very slim have you seen um, an advantage or a disadvantage
0: um i think i have i my personal experience is that um i have seen it's still it's still difficult for us because Sadly, people would ask me like. Um, actually, I had some VC firms say no to me because they already had another Latina brand in their portfolio, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. So you can only have one? Like, do you think that? Do you think that like Unilever Ventures has only one white brand in their portfolio? You know? And so that was really interesting that people still see us like they know that there's an opportunity but there's a hesitation because somehow it's like, oh, there can't be too many or, you know. And so that was disappointing that that's still that way because that's what I also experienced when I was a musician. I used to have like festival and talent buyers say, oh, we already have a Latin band on the bill this year. Mm -hmm. If there could only be one. Kind of like a checklist. Yeah, exactly. It's like they checked, okay, they've got their one like, you know, like ethnic band, cool. Like that's taken care of. Now we can do everything else. And so um, it is... I think it's it's difficult for different reasons, right? There's a lot of investors that don't want to do beauty, that don't want to do consumer, they only do tech. So it's like, okay, fine. I have to go find the people that just do this this vertical, you know, and then getting them to see the opportunity, which again can be challenging. If you're talking to VCs or any investor who doesn't, who's just completely disconnected from the Latino community, like they don't understand the the massive size of us in this country. They think that it's still a niche. But I'm like, look at the data, you know, when I was in the Target Accelerator, they confirmed that their number two buyer are Latinos, you know, like we over-index, we spend more than other groups. And still, it's just until there's more of us, meaning like more Latinas on the other side, meaning like in venture capital positions, it's, it's hard for people to see us because they don't know us, you know? Yeah. And that goes the same with retail buyers, by the way, you know? That goes the same with retail buyers, you know, we're, fortunately or unfortunately, right. We're in this moment in history where retail buyers now have DEI programs and they also have their boxes to check, you know, and they want to hopefully do this for the right reasons because they understand that we are the opportunity, that we are the future. We are the mainstream, but to some people, it's still a box that they have to check.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, are you planning to distribute your product in Latin America anytime soon?
0: Not anytime soon, but obviously the ultimate goal is to become a global brand. We first have to conquer the United States and then we have, you know, interest coming from from Europe, first of all, and then um, then we can, you know, conquer other countries. But it is what's challenging is is the actual, the freight because of the customs and all of that, that is the challenge. So until we have like a distributor or some kind of registered agent that can help us with that, it's a little challenging with the team and the infrastructure we have now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we were doing this um, beauty market research, we found out that um, I mean, in Latin America, there are still a lot of brands that haven't been able to, you know, tap into that market because of a lot of restrictions, more than freight and logistics. It's more like permits and, you know, because of the formulas or the or the ingredients that they're using, or even like you were saying, distribution. It's it's quite complicated. So it's really amazing to see how Latin American consumers Um, you know, they shop beauty when they travel for two reasons, because one, they can't find the product in their countries or because of status, right? And they just like, oh, I bought it in New York. I bought it in during my trip and whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see um, the lack of of offering sometimes and, Mm -hmm. and luxury beauty products in Latin America. And that's how a lot of really you no know, small independent brands are rising to the occasion and catering that lack of product.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's also why you know the conglomerates continue to dominate, right? Because mm-hmm. it's unfortunate, right? This is why people are still buying all the products owned by the big, huge conglomerate brands like Procter and Gamble or you know Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, there's
1: <laughs> there's a lot of brands that are really small batches, organic. You know. Um, and, and, and they, and they do cater, um, you know, the region and, but it's, it's hard, it's hard. And, and, and they just, the scalability, of course, and you've seen it and you've been through that the scalability mm-hmm. is it's, it's quite complicated, especially in the United States, you have a consumer that's very oriented into, you know, this consumption behavior when in Latin America, again, it's kind of like I'm shopping luxury beauty because, when I go abroad or because I want to belong, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a different pattern I feel.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So now you sell in Nordstrom, free people and, you know, more over 400 boutiques, right?
0: So, and Credo Beauty, which is a great Oh, Credo partner. Beauty, that's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, scalability, huge. Um, and half of your sales are also direct to consumer, Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself and your brand five years time?
0: Well, in five years time, I mean, at the rate, at the pace that we're going, you know, in five years, you know, we should be international at that point. You know, our team will have grown <laughs> for sure to be able to support that. And um, and so I, I'm, I'm excited to see how it will unfold. I think that every year, you know, we do our best to forecast and to plan. And then big surprises always happen, like good surprises. And so, you know, whether we partner with a national retailer here in the United States that then we can go, you know, um, partner with others overseas or whether we end up opening like brick and mortar stores. I mean, anything is on the table. There's so much opportunity for us. You know, we get a lot of um, people reaching out to us, uh, presenting new opportunities to us. And but I think within five years, it should we should be in international waters for sure. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you. And you obviously to... products, right? Obviously more products. The, the product line will have grown by then significantly. Of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any category? Will you still keep the body category or are you trying to explore different ones?
0: We d- There's still a lot for us to do in body, um, which we're working on now. And I think the next thing that we'll do is probably hair. Mm, interesting. Can't wait to see. If
1: you had to give an advice to Sandra, um, I don't know, 10 years ago, what would you say?
0: Mm. Oh God. Who was I 10 years ago? That was a different life. Um, well, I guess I would say something along the lines of like money is infinity <laughs> because <laughs> I think that I didn't understand my own limitations and ceiling, the ceiling that I had put over myself with regards to money and like prosperity and wealth um and because i have just been living paycheck to paycheck like my entire adult life i just couldn't imagine what was possible um and so learning about investing learning how money works sooner would have you know been better and um and i think also just learning new skills because again you know, again, no regrets because obviously my limitations are what pushed me to become an entrepreneur. But when I found myself unemployed at the age of 43, I realized that my skill sets were limited. And so that's why I had to go build something because I couldn't just, you know, be a musician. I couldn't just go work for another brand in sales. Like neither one of those things were going to dramatically change my financial future. And so learning how to build, you know, was was key to my freedom.
1: Yeah. I definitely sympathize with you. Um I wasn't supposed to be an entrepreneur. I was always kind of like a corporate person and um and then all of a sudden I just became an entrepreneur myself and I have had to learn how to be that person and grow thick skin and you know kind of learn like like you're saying new your skills and and push myself into into New emotions, skills, learning things, and and it has been quite a ride. Um, would you say that people learn how to be entrepreneurs or is entrepreneurship for everyone?
0: Entrepreneurship is not for everyone, and I don't think people should like nothing is for everyone. You know, not everyone uh, wants to take risks. Not everybody wants to push themselves. Some people like just working a job at somewhere else where they don't have to think about the whole oversight, the whole vision, like they just have their job to do and then they get to go home and do whatever they want. I mean, that was me for like 20 years, right? When I Before I worked in CPG, I worked um, in higher education, you know, and that was kind of like my easy day job so that I could go put all of my energy into my music. So not everyone has to be an entrepreneur, um, but if you know that it's for you and you have an idea, then it's for a reason. and, And if not you, then who? Exactly. And it's never too late. Never too late. I mean, I'm an example of that, but there's also so many other examples that came before me. I mean, Julia Childs, for example, she didn't become Julia Childs until she was 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so there it it is never too late. I mean, it can be too late, like for maybe certain, uh, like, career paths, like, let's say when you're 70, you might not be able to be in the New York City Ballet. You know, like, I'm using an extreme example, <laughs> right? I would use an extreme example. but you know, yes, generally speaking, it's never too late.
1: Of course. Well, we finish all of our podcasts asking our guests the same question. What is your why?
0: My why is ultimately to make an impact, to make, to help people feel confident and proud in in who they are and see their potential that's my bigger why in life. And right now that uh, is also the why at Nopalera, but we do it through a brand that sells products. And so we're all about self-worth, you know, and, and courage and confidence and resilience. But, you know, that's that's kind of in the context of the bigger why of my life, you know, because I won't be running Nopalera forever. And so what will I do after that? It will still be making an impact, um, you know, helping people step into their own worth and and being confident.
1: Well, you sure made an impact on me when I started um, reading about you and you know, and about your journey and entrepreneurship and all the things that you have accomplished. So here's one example. And I want to thank you again for being um, so generous with your time and sharing all of, you know, your anecdotes and stories with us. I can't wait to meet you in person. I hope we meet soon. And I want to thank you again um, for participating in the last podcast. I'm very, very sure that our audience and a lot of people that hear us will, um, you know, feel also the same things that I felt since I read about you.
0: Well, thank you so much. I definitely look forward to meeting you in person too.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sandra. And I hope to see you soon, hopefully in Miami.
0: Yes, hopefully.
1: Okay. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the laughs podcast. We'll see you soon as well.
0: We hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. You can email us your suggestions on who you would like to hear in our next episode. If you like this chapter, don't forget to leave a comment or rank this podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, remember you can follow us on Instagram at Latin American Fashion Summit and on 3 by Laughs, a new platform that will revolutionize the way in which the fashion industry connects.
1: Thanks for tuning in onto the Laughs Podcast.